1: Is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. I, I talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll and we're getting our rock on today with a true heavy metal legend one of my biggest influences as a singer. I'm talking about Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden back on Talk is Jericho and this time he's talking about his new book, What Does This Button Do? An Autobiography. The book is all about his time with Iron Maiden, of course, and the 10 years he spent as an airplane pilot while in Maiden, and also the 10 years he spent away from Iron Maiden. He's going to tell all those stories, um, like the time he was almost shot down over Russia. Uh, He's telling some classic Maiden tales, why he left the band, what eventually brought him back, how they used to crash weddings and parties whenever they were on tour, more specifically the Polish wedding. Bruce is talking about the charity show he did in Sarajevo and the craziness about being nearly stranded in a war-torn country, playing gigs during a war. He talks about cutting off his hair, the initial fan reaction uh, that they got after he did it. I know about that. He's got details on the classic Iron Maiden documentary, Iron Maiden Behind the Iron Curtain. Saw it back in 1985. Still resonates in my mind. Lots of great stories from the legendary Air Raid Siren himself. Bruce Dickinson returns to Talk as Jericho to push your buttons, and he's here right now. All right. Ah, hello, Bruce. Hey, hello, Bruce. How are you, hey, my how friend? How you doing? <laughs> Good,
2: man. I'm, I'm very well. At, at last, I was sat there, and I walked in. I walked in and said, hi, I got a phone interview at 8, eight o'clock, and then this... I, this guy called up and I went, yeah, no, no. I said, he went, oh no, it's all possible, help, you know. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's completely my fault for being a goofball. Sorry about that.
1: Well, you're uh, now an established, illustrious author, so I have to expect some of that prima donna uh, atmosphere. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, I was. Uh, it's, it, you know what I love about this book, and and uh, first of all, congratulations. It's a great read. And I'll tell you the reason why. I've I've written a few books myself because you can tell that you wrote this book uh, completely on your own.
2: Well, uh, I'm 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 very glad you can tell, uh, which is great because uh, it, it, I, I wanted the book to be, you know, my my voice, it right? The authentic, authentic, like sitting down having a beer with me, you know, uh, type type read, basically.
1: Well, and that's the thing too, because a lot of times when you read autobiographies, you you can kind of, you know, someone uses a ghostwriter, that sort of a thing. But I notice, like like you said, it's it is like sitting down and, and talking with you, with your sense of humor and your little, little quirky little like uh, references and jokes and that sort of thing. It just makes it a lot a lot more fun to read uh, when you when you get that. Did you always have the uh, the idea of writing it by yourself?
2: Yeah, I was yeah I was never going to go with a ghostwriter. Uh, I mean, I do know. No, there's one or two people who would probably have been, you know, quite sympathetic and everything. But but it's always going to be their um, their 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 words and their take on things. And whenever I read autobiographies, which I don't do very often for that very reason, mm-hmm. um, it, there's always a bit somewhere that reads like a press release,
3: <laughs> or right.
2: or it reads like how somebody thinks. Uh, I, uh, a rock singer ought to say something. And it's just like, you know, unless you've been there and done it, you don't know what it's like. So you have to do it yourself.
1: Yeah, as I always say, like I'm too egotistical to allow somebody else to transcribe my story because nobody can tell it the way that I can.
2: Yeah. And and actually, th- that gives, you, you, if you do it yourself, um, you can nuance it, so you get exactly what it was like to be in your head. The way I kind of put it is it's a little bit like it's, it, it, it's as if my you know, as if I was just like being a, a a movie projector and I'm projecting what's inside my head onto the wall and people can sit and watch it with me.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting too though I find it like when you write a book and you do draft after draft and edit after edit after edit After a while, and was was it the same for you? When you're reading a story, you're like, I don't even know if this is good or bad. I don't know if this joke is funny anymore. I just you just start getting inside your own head, where it's like, should it be the or should it be and? It's got to be and. No, it's got to be the.
2: I gotta own up here. I didn't dwell on stuff. Mm -hmm. So I used to go and I would uh, settle down every day and I'd write. Uh, about twelve hundred to fifteen hundred words
3: mm-hmm.
2: and it would take me about two and a half hours and I would go straight through and I would just go in the zone I had a little notebook of uh, the stories I wanted to tell mm-hmm. and and then i 'd get to the end of about twelve hundred fifteen hundred words, and I used to handwrite them as well, so it 's not uh, typed um. And then I just—it's um, like that was it. Mojo's gone for the day, and I drink my beer and go, poof, <laughs> there you go." And and then I just move on to the next the next sequences, and I sort of daydream my way through the book. So I the next there were no, for, for example, there were no chapters mm-hmm. in the book. So it was just one. There's 700 pages of. Uh, you know, manuscript paper. And there's very few big corrections. The biggest corrections and kind of little rewrites of of, of the old line here and there and maybe half a paragraph or something are all in the first, uh, you know, 20% of the book. The rest of it really was like a kind of stream of consciousness going down. And I wrote the book quite quickly. I mean, I didn't start writing the book until the middle of February.
1: mm it's interesting, too, like, for me, when you're writing a book, and obviously it's the same for you as well, the stuff that happened over the last 20, you know, 25 years is a lot easier to remember than the stuff that happened, you know, you start out when you're a kid and then go into high school and go into when you were, you know, going to, to you know, college and all that sort of stuff and starting the bands. Was it harder to remember those early years? Like, I had to sit there for a long time and really dig deep Almost like a psychiatrist, and try and get into remembering those old memories.
2: I have a pretty strong, I mean, I have a terrible name. Ter- I, have a, I actually have a shocking memory for names. I, I always have had. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I've got a really good memory for descriptive things, as in, like, like, like a, literally, like, like pointing a movie camera at a scene and seeing what I did. So, I mean, um, there are some hotels back on the number of the Beast tour that I could tell you the colour of the carpet and the pattern on it, <laughs> um, and that's just a very strange thing to be able to do, I guess. But it's the way my my it's the way my my recall memory works. It's very visual. So for that reason, once I got inside, what stories I wanted to tell, and sometimes I'd, I'd forgotten some of the stories, and I went, "Oh, oh, that was a good one." Mm-hmm. Oh, Wow, I remember that. <laughs> and sometimes I would sit and talk to people about the book. And as I was talking, I would recall things as I was going through it. I would go, oh, I better write that one down. That's a good one to, mm-hmm. to, to, to go with, you know. So the book ended up being actually a little bit over, I wrote a little bit over 160,000 words. And we took out about 35,000 words. hmm Maybe more, actually. I think we maybe took out 50,000 words, so maybe I wrote more than 160,000 words. But So we, we took us three and a half days to get 50,000 words out of the book. Otherwise, it would have been 600 pages long and not 400. But um,
1: That's the hardest thing, though, it, trying it to decide. It doesn't
2: have to be a, a, an entertaining book, so you don't want it to be a, a doorstep that somebody's going to look at and go, oh, my God, this is like war and peace, you know. It's got to it's, it, it's it's be an entertaining read above all, you
1: know. And it's hard, too, because I I my first book was the same. I wrote 165. I had to get down to 130. And I found instead of having to edit out stories, you could just edit down, like, okay, this story should not be three pages. I can tell the same thing in one page. Was that the same for you, or did you have to edit out chunks yeah. of the book?
2: We, I just took chunks out. I mean, so for example, there would be there was like uh, three or four um, anecdotes about time in Samson, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 each of them was very funny, but one after the other, after the other, after the other. Suddenly, you, you know, it's it, it's not quite so funny um, because you've already done the laughs, and you need to move on to the next part of the narrative. And my my editor. Jack, um, uh, the fantastically named Jack Fogg, uh, he he said, look, I I want to edit this as if it was a novel. Mm -hmm. So we've got to keep the story moving. And the irony of it was, was that some of the early stories I'd written, some of the early uh, episodes, if you like, at a very early stage in the book, uh, he said, oh, I need to get these types, something typed up so I can show it to some of the other publishers to show them what kind of a book it is and show them you could write and so on and so forth. So I I, I typed up three stories and uh, each one, you know, five, six pages each. And um, I said, there you go. And they all went, oh, these are great. This is really funny. This is going to be a hilarious book. This is going to be terrific, blah, blah, blah. None of those stories ended up in the book. <laughs> because in the end, we had more stories than we needed. And we they just said, sorry, but this, this one here, th- 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 we're getting, just going to have to lose this. And I went, well, I, you know, okay, I see where you're going with this. So um, the good thing about that is that I've got you know, thirty-five, forty thousand 40,000 words of episodic stories from all kinds of different eras, um, some of which can easily be, um, you know, repurposed into doing something else. But that something else wouldn't be for, oh, at least two and a half years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's hard, isn't it, right? When you write a book, it's very mentally taxing when you're finished. You're like, oh, my God, thank God I'm finished with that.
2: Well, it it was... um, I wasn't uh, when I when I got done with it, I mean the uh I, I already did I already had the I already had the last line of the book as soon as I wrote the title. Um, you know, so uh mm-hmm. um I, I, I thought, well that's that's a great way to finish the book because it kind of it's it it really is like press the reset button for the rest of your life, you know. After getting uh you know, getting through through the whole Throat cancer uh, mm-hmm. business and and starting to st- starting to go on tour, flying a seven forty seven, you know. So so <laughs> that okay, that's a good place to stop, right? Um, but um, uh, it still wasn't quite over, you know, because he, he, he they said, uh, look, have you got like a little story we can do just at the beginning of the book, so like a little chaser, like the first mm-hmm. first five minutes of a Hollywood movie, just to, something just to, to set the scene that it's it's just. Not your average rock and roll book, and um, I went, oh, okay, let me think about that, yeah, you know, so hence we ended up with the the story about me nearly getting uh, uh shot down over russia uh, yeah. <laughs> with a, with, a, with a couple of members of the British government
1: on board. yeah, somehow you're flying a, a some kind of a private uh like you said <laughs> fishing trip or whatever it may be over the over the airspace of Russia, and they don't want you there,
2: yeah. Yeah, well, the fishing trip. I think, I think, I think the fish they were talking about may very well have been nuclear submarines. But uh, you know, uh, seeing as they had uh, uh, FBI and uh, personal equivalent of the FBI on board, uh, armed to the teeth, uh, and there were just these guys flying out to uh, the headquarters of the Soviet Northern Fleet in Murmansk, and and I mean, I was just working as a as a first officer um, with the airline I worked for. I mean, because I worked. Uh, full-time for 10 years uh, as an airline pilot Mm -hmm. Um, whilst I was in Iron Maiden. Um, And and nothing to do with Air Force One or any of that stuff. I mean, I was just a regular, had a job, you know. Mm -hmm. And part of my job was flying people off sometimes to some pretty uh, weird and funky places as as well as doing uh, what you might call normal passenger flying. But we were usually chartered in by other... Other carriers. So, you know, if I was in the in the USA, for example, uh, and was working for an equivalent carrier, they'd say, "Oh, uh, American Airlines are short of an airplane for six months. Uh, you're going to be badged up as American, and you're going to be flying people to Cancun every day because they they are short of airplanes, and so they're going to rent you guys." So that's the jobs that we did.
1: Mm-hmm. Which that's that's what I love about your book too. Is is once again, the title says it all. What does this button do? And at first I was like, what does that mean? But I understand. It's like throughout your life you've had all these different opportunities and you're taking a chance. It's like, oh, what happens if I press this button? And what happens if I press that button? It's a, it's a great well, kind of tagline.
3: Well,
2: that, isn't that what kids do? I mean, kids do that. You know, I mean, every, every, every child um, sees the world in a new way every single day. Mm-hmm. Nobody has ever seen the world the way that that they, and that any child sees the world that's what's amazing about being a kid you know um, i mean you give babies probably an unwise thing to do uh, give them a knife and fork <laughs> <laughs> but i guarantee you that you'll be amazed at the number of different things they figure out to do with a knife and fork anything except eat
3: right you know <laughs> yeah.
2: because they see it in a new They play with it it's like there's no restriction and as for buttons and things like that, you know, you get a baby or a child or whatever, you know, give them a load of buttons, and especially the button says, do not press this button. I guarantee you it's the first button they're going to push.
1: <laughs> right. And that's kind of a metaphor for what you did throughout your life.
2: It's a, it is absolutely a metaphor for what I did throughout my life. And I, I, I uh, probably, probably not like every single second of every single day, but at some point in your life, Everybody has had a, what does this button do moment uh, that has just made them feel, wow, how cool is that? Look at that. You know, I don't know what it is, whether it's kicking a, a soccer ball, whether it's you know throwing a, a pass to completion, whether it's doing something physical, whether it's writing, whether it's music, whatever it is. There's something somewhere that everybody can do. That is going to really fire up the passion in them. And those are the things, that's what the book is a celebration of, I suppose. It's not about trying to, you know, settle scores with people that nobody else mm-hmm. has ever heard of or cares about, um, or about, you know, you know, all the bad sex you ever had in your life, you know, <laughs> all that kind of nonsense. I mean, I, I said to somebody else, in the interviewer, they went, oh, there's not much, you know, sort of like. Uh, Sex and drugs and rock and roll. I said no. I said really. I said you want to know why? I said first of all because there wasn't that much, and secondly it's kind of boring. Uh, you want to see like stuff that's funny? Go watch Spinal Tap and then go watch The Hangover, and that's all you need to know about <laughs> sex, drugs and rock and roll. Yeah, that's all you need no to know. More. That's, that's all I need to know about <laughs> touring in the eighties. As 80s. stupid as it gets, you know? Although there is, I said, so, go what's ahead. What's the point? You know, uh, it's far better, I think, to read about things that are you know, positive and exciting and different and things that celebrate life, not things that, you know, celebrate just basically just, you know, messing with people.
1: There is a great story in there that you just had a sentence of it, that you went and uh, had a couple of drinks and you ended up putting your uh, wiener in the ear of the singer of Quiet Riot. That's a good. <laughs>
2: yeah, good... that's right. Yes. I mean, uh, again, you know, that's, if that's as bad as it gets, you know, then uh, <laughs> that's okay. Um, I did. There, there, there's a few. I there's a few bits of. There's a few bits of bad behaviour in there, you know, just to demonstrate that we're not 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 entirely choir boys, you know, but. Uh, by and large they're they're, they're pretty they're, they're pretty harmless uh and and, and it's all it, it's good fun even though it's uh you know <laughs> pretty stupid. There a few we edit uh, edited out actually that were uh you know that were uh, uh a bit more a bit more debauched and i i was I was quite keen on one or two of them. I was like, yeah, really, can we get that one in there you know right. The trouble is that they involved other people and other celebrities and of course you know that that opens up a can of worms. And all of a sudden, the book all becomes about that story. Well, yeah, because everybody's going to pick on that one story because it involves some other celebrity. So you go, actually, you know what? It probably is good to uh, to take a step back here because you want to establish the book for what it is and get beyond that, you know, that sort of celebrity reality nonsense.
1: Well, that, that'll be the clickbait for the book too, right? if you go onto the, the websites and such. Bruce Dickinson said this about this person and that about that person. and That's not what you really, the point of yeah. what the book is.
2: Well, I, 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 and all of a sudden people think, oh, well, I'm not going to bother with this book or, uh, or, or maybe uh, the, or they get the book and they think, oh, it's not like that at all, you know. Mm-hmm. So straight away I went, no, this is going to be an uplifting book. There's a, there was an English actor a long, long time ago um, uh, uh, long passed away now. Um, a guy called David Niven.
1: Yeah, right? sure, of course, yeah.
2: And um, yeah, um, very famous Hollywood actor. Mm-hmm. And he he came out with a, a biography, autobiography called The Moon's a Balloon. And it was, and I read it when I was a kid. One of the few bio- autobiographies I have actually read, and it was absolutely riveted by it because there was not a single nasty Mm -hmm. weird thing in it but it was his life was just this huge adventure from whether it was going out and you know going out and wrestling with Errol Flynn or you know whether it was going and being in the army in the second world war and being on special forces doing reconnaissance but then he'd find you know a blown up wine cellar and they would just sort of go well let's Let's just go and get drunk in the middle of the battle. And they sort of did, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's all these great stories. And I was like, you know what? This guy is telling a life that really has been lived. And, and, and he was loving life. And I thought, that's a book to aspire to, you know. Because life is really, you know, life is all we've got. The alternative is, you know, <laughs> inevitable but not so great.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, too. I, I like what you said earlier, and it's something I learned from my books, is that you don't want to go and, and settle a vendetta or start a vendetta with somebody because it's not necessary. If you look at the story of your life, no matter who was opposed to you or whoever pissed you off, it's like in the end you won. You got to do all these great things. So I always find that, that negative slant, <laughs> well, you don't need it.
3: Yeah,
2: no, exactly. And also, the um, uh, sort of funnily enough, whilst I was writing the book, I had people um, <clears throat> emailing me Saying, uh, I, I hope, I hope, uh, I hope, <laughs> I'm going to be well represented in the book, you know. <laughs> and, and 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 I didn't have the heart. I didn't have the heart to email them back and say, "I'm really sorry, but you're not important enough to be in it." <laughs> you know. Um, so uh, it, it was it was strange, you know, uh, that, those those sorts of uh, sorts of comments coming from people, and 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 um, in truth. There's lots of things that that get blown up uh, out of proportion, um, in, 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 you know, in the press on occasions. And you think it's not really important to, as part of my life. So mm-hmm. why bother with it in a book? It's just gossip. So yeah, let's just leave it. There are way, way more important things, way more important stories to talk about and things to tell. You
1: know, for sure. And then you mentioned the adventure of of David Niven. One of the stories that. To me, was was one of the centerpieces of the book was was your trip to Sarajevo when you were uh, doing the Skunk Works, I believe, in '95. And talk about this adventure that you had as the singer of a rock and roll band, but you are in the middle of a war zone and almost like a I don't know an underground mercenary at this point in time. And what, what an adventure that was!
2: Yeah, that was a little um, that was a little strange. Um, <laughs> Probably slightly unhinged thing to do, looking back on it, Uh, but uh, that was, it was a truly what does this button do moment. Um, I got a phone call, funny enough, from the magazine Kerrang in in the UK. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was out of Maiden and I was sitting around at home, and they phoned up and they said, We've had a request for somebody to do um, um, a charity show in Sarajevo. And this is in 1994 in winter, and there's a proper shooting war going on, and um, it was the longest siege since Stalingrad. In fact, it was longer
3: than Mm. the
2: siege of Stalingrad in the Second World War. So there was no question that this was like, you know, a pretty serious situation. So I said, what are they out of their mind? And they went, no, 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 apparently um, it's all going to be... Sort of sponsored by the UN, and you'll have all this protection and flak jackets and helmets, and you'll be helicoptered in, and you do the gig, and they'll take you straight out again. And it's yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and it's all organised. And I went, okay, yeah, <laughs> all right, why not? Mm-hmm. You know, what does this button do? And none of it was true. <laughs> so we we did get there on a a military flight into Split, which was like eight ten hours drive away, and then. It all started to unravel because the guy came up, the the one of the British Army guys who was working for the U.N., he said, look, he goes, the U.N. are scared that if you go and play a, a show in, in Sarajevo that you'll upset the Serbs who don't like the Bosnians and they don't like anything that makes them happy, so uh, here's your tickets, go home. Hmm. And um, I said, well, you know, I'm not really, I don't know about this uh, quitting business, you know, uh, are you sure there's no other way of getting in there? And we found a local cameraman who said, yeah, we can get you into this secret tunnel, you know, <laughs> um, which I thought sounded quite adventurous. <laughs> sure. so I said to the guys, I said, well, why don't, we, why, don't, why don't we stick around for a week? Because the next flight wasn't for another week to get mm. us out. Wow. And I said, look, you know, we've got, we've got some gear. We could, do a, I, we could do a couple of pub gigs here in Split. It's a nice enough place. I'm sure the beer's cheap. We could find a floor to sleep on, you know. Come on, let's not just quit straight away. So we told them, okay, guys, we're staying. And at which point, everything changed. The guy made a couple of phone calls, and he came back and said, "Uh, okay, so now you're nothing to do with the UN. Mm -hmm. We went, well, yeah, I guess not. They said, well, in that case, you must be something to do with the British Army. You must be our guests. I went, Okay, this is sounding good, yeah. (laughs) What's next? He said, well, come on down for a cup of tea, and um, we'll store your equipment, and we'll see if we can get you into Sarajevo. And so at midnight that night, along comes this soft-topped ex-military flatbed truck painted bright yellow with Felix the Cat Roadrunner and Asterix the Gaul on it. (laughs) And they said, there you go, there's your truck, sleeping bags in the back, equipment in the back, two crates of beer, and off we went for eight hours through the mountains and the fog, and we got hijacked by a couple of soldiers, and they were friendly, so it was okay, and then we went up to an active firefight, and then we drove into the city, <laughs> um, and we did a gig. I mean, it's the story, it's all in the book, but sure. it was one of the most intense three, no, five days of my life. And I came back to London just before Christmas and I had a five-month-old, you know, five-month-old kid. I I just looked at the world and life in a totally different way. Like the, the Western world just seemed to be so absurd with our obsessions with red lights and green lights and traffic lights and mm. do this and don't that. And, I mean, and I've just come from a place where people can be walking down the street and get their brains blown out
3: mm-hmm. just
2: for nothing, you know, just for being randomly killed, you know. I'm thinking, wow, you know, the, 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 the world is, is really strange. But the wonderful thing about it was, was that we did it. We didn't actually, it wasn't like a Bono thing where, you know, the the world gave us like a new American Express card to give to everybody. Um, We just did it. And 20 years later, I was in my local pub and somebody came up to me and said, hello, you don't know me. And I went, oh, no, it's going to be a selfie, it's going to be an autograph, it's going to be something. And they went, no, 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 I want to show you a movie that the people of Sarajevo have made about your concert. Mm. I went, you're kidding me, really? And they've, they've done this film called Scream for Me, Sarajevo, that's won all these you know, human rights prizes and everything else. And it's in fact, the mayor of Sarajevo actually was a kid at that concert. Wow, And it's the story of all the kids who were at the concert and how that one show changed their lives 20 years later. It's an astonishing film. So that's going to be released sometime next year, February or March, whenever we can track people down. But the filmmakers actually, when I saw this film, I couldn't believe it because I went, hang on a minute you mean you found the truck that we drove in on? It still <laughs> looks like that. And they went, yeah. And they found footage of the gig. They found, they found all this cool stuff and they tracked down all the people that, that, you know, helped us in, helped us out. Um, and I actually went back there. Um, the, 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 guys who were in skunk works, they went back there on the 20th anniversary. Unfortunately, I'd just been diagnosed with throat cancer mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell anybody and so I had to say uh, I can't really come and they said why can't you? I said oh I, I, um, I've got to go into hospital for some tests hmm. and you know you had to be really sort of like evasive and it, I hated it because uh, it would have been quite nice just to say yeah I'd love to come but I actually had a, a few more pressing issues on my mind okay. at the time so I went back a year later and and did some filming for it, just some interviews. But it was an amazing, life-changing experience. It's all in the book, anyway.
1: Isn't it amazing how you never know who's watching you and who you influence after all these years of doing this? Like you said, the the guy who grows up to be the mayor of Sarajevo was at your gig in 1994.
2: Yeah. Well, you never know where life is gonna. Mm-hmm. You never know where life is gonna take you. You know, you never know whether you know. Hey, you know. Should I Should I turn at this t junction? Should I turn left or should I turn right right? You know what happens if I turn left and if you turn left, hey, who knows what might happen? Who knows who you might meet you know mm-hmm. so you, you never know so I, I I think everybody on the on the journey through life just needs to keep their eyes and ears and arms open and just em- embrace everything you you f- embrace everything that you feel that you see you know. I think the world would be a a much better place for it.
1: Another thing, when you're talking about the the, the film in Sarajevo, another film that that was really uh, interesting to me was was Iron Maiden behind the Iron Curtain, and you talk about that in this. Um, I remember seeing this when I was probably 14 years old in in Winnipeg, where I grew up. As you know, they played it on on like the nightly video show. Here's Iron Maiden behind the Iron Curtain. It was a big special that they promoted for like a week. And the reason why is this was really you guys were the first band to go to Poland and to Russia and these places. What an experience that must have been!
2: Oh yeah, it was. I mean, um, I mean, uh, the strange thing was we, we we drove. We had to drive in and out via via some other countries as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like a, a, a what was then Czechoslovakia. And I think we might have had to go through an East German border or something like that. But it was just, it was kind of spooky seeing uh, trains full of Russian armored vehicles Mm -hmm. just being transported up and down. You're thinking, wow, this is real. I mean,
3: this is.
2: this stuff is just sitting there, and they're all pointing. They're all pointing this stuff at us. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, this 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 is the real deal. I mean, I, I, I um, early on after I um, uh, left uh, uh, left school or was kicked out of school, uh, <laughs> you know, I joined the what would be like the army reserve uh, briefly. You know, um.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, volunteer reserve, whatever, in, in in the UK, and and one of the crazy things was that our, our unit was supposed to be twenty four hours call out, air portable, straight to the front line in the event that you know you know it all kicked off, you know.
3: Right.
2: And I was told that my. My life expectancy in combat was one minute and 45 seconds. I was like, oh, well, we we'll get it over
3: with quickly, I guess, you know. Um, but it, it, was, it was chilling
2: seeing that level of activity going on, you know. And yet, you know, it, it was six, however many years later it was, the war came down, and it all just kind of evaporated. It was a big it was a big front, it was a big facade. Mm. nobody in those countries, nobody wanted to fight anybody. you know all they wanted to do was just get on with people
1: right, sure, of course. were you surprised at the level of of maidens popularity amongst the kids that were there because they' were fanatical
2: oh oh, Poland was extraordinary, yeah you know, it was like uh it was like the whole country was coming out to see you you know <laughs> i mean i mean I, actually. It, at times, it genuinely felt like there was, you know, there was a, a bit of a revolution going on, you know. Uh, but it, it was clear that, you know, that, that, that there was so much passion there, and the the place, that, you know, Poland now is not is not uh, is not a depressing place. Uh, at all. It's, it's it's really resurgent and the people are incredibly proud of their of their country and what they've done and they're very inventive and of course there's loads of Polish people um you know moved and come to England and they work work really hard and they're, you know, really compatible with you know with, with you know our UK society. Well in mm-hmm. my opinion they are anyway. Sure, yeah, so, yeah. so so we you know, I, I think we we kind of get on pretty good as as, as a pair of countries. But back then, it, it was the environment that the the, the local, that the Poles had to live in was, was a bit, it was grim. It was dull, it was gray, and it was all this Russian Stalinist architecture, you know. Mm-hmm. It was all falling apart, it was all badly built, nothing really worked, everything was just, there were department stores, but there was nothing to buy, mm-hmm. you know and there was a legacy of of the second world war which was still very much present so you know the russians had taken over the ex headquarters of the gestapo in one town mm. and they turned it they turned it into a department store <laughs> but they they hadn't changed anything. <laughs> walking around and there'd be these funny little bits of German writing and sort of like, Yeah, a torture chamber this way. Oh no, sorry, it's the makeup department, you know. And it's just really odd. Really odd. There was some of the venues still had bits of the Nazi spy holes still hooked up so that the the Nazis could have a look and look at the audience, you know, during yeah. the whatever meetings and rallies and stuff they had there. So it was kind of chilling, but that's pretty much, that's gone now. But it was still hanging around like a really bad smell when when we went there. And it was almost like we were doing a kind of exorcism on all that, Mm. you know, rubbish that was old, geriatric, evil, nasty, black stuff hanging over everybody.
1: Do you remember uh, the the Polish wedding? Because it's on on the video, but do you remember it?
2: Well, I do remember the... Actually, (laughs) I remember the Polish wedding far more than I should, considering (laughs) how much we'd had to drink. And um, there there, there were loads of bottles of Russian champagne, which is very confusing stuff. Uh, (laughs) Very sweet, very sickly. It gets you drunk, gives you a hell of a headache. And, of course, lots of vodka. And I'd never really drunk, frozen vodka shots before. So uh, drinking vodka in that way uh, really had a pretty profound effect on me for about a week afterwards. You know, <laughs> like the world was actually pink. Jeez. And i went, why is the world pink? And the answer is because <laughs> your eyeballs are so bloodshot, the world is pink. <laughs> uh, so that was a lesson learned. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I do remember the Polish wedding. And... Um, it was not an altogether terrible version of Smoke on the Water.
1: It wasn't you know? bad at all, considering the state you were in. So this is when Iron Maiden played at the Polish wedding. Did you guys just crash it, or were you invited, or how did that even come to play?
2: It was, it was going on in the hotel, <laughs> down in the, in the, in the like, foyer at the hotel, somebody's getting married and was a party and everything else, and the the polls are just really friendly, you know? Um, So they said, oh yeah, come on down, yeah, he's coming down to the wedding, blah, 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 oh, you're a band, oh yeah, come on, well, actually, I think we probably gate-crashed the band, because we did... Back in the day, we did that sort of thing. If there was a drum kit or something else, we could normally get drunk enough and Adrian would get up and start playing the blues and then Nico would... Well, I'd usually get up and start trying to play the drums and then Nico would kick me off and, you know, uh, and actually do it properly. But, uh, yeah.
0: (laughs) The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters
1: Chris Jericho inviting you to the first ever rock and wrestling rager at sea. Picture this. Rock and roll, wrestling, comedy, live podcasting, all on the open ocean from October 27th to the 31st, 2018, from Miami to Nassau. I'm bringing Hall of Fame wrestlers, some of the greatest rock and roll bands on the planet, and putting the first wrestling ring on a cruise ship ever. Don't be a stupid idiot. Make the list. Check us out at chrisjerichocruise.com. Talk is Jericho. Well, you mentioned uh, "Smoke on the Water," and one of the things that, that I really enjoyed about the book, uh, as as a, as a lifelong Maiden fan and as a singer myself, was was the three biggest influences on your on your vocal, which was um, uh, Ian Gillen, which of course I knew, but the other two were kind of a surprise, which were, were Ronnie James Dio and uh, and the and Arthur Brown, the Crazy World of Arthur Brown. That was really cool to to read your thoughts on that.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, all my, all my secrets are out now, you see, so people can go, aha, I see where he stole that bit from. Sure. Oh yeah, that little trill, that's, that's like a copy of the one on Rainbow Rising when he does blah, 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 you know. And it's all true. I mean, I, I I'm the first one to put both hands up and go, yep, guilty as charged. If you're going to borrow and if you're going to learn, you might as well learn from the best.
1: Well, the Gillan scream is, is is quite obvious in in a cool way, but the deal I never realized before. But yeah, you got a lot of Ronnie James deal in your voice.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, though. Well, what what impressed me about Ronnie was that he it, it just had this smooth delivery, but it just sounded like you know it, it was every time he opened his mouth, it was like you know like a, a few thousand you know galloping mm-hmm. Mongolian horses came out of it. You're like, <laughs> how the hell does that? sound come out of that little guy, you know, Right. Uh, but it did, um, and it wasn't uh, quiet, you know, Ronnie, I mean, m- my voice is physically quite, it's quite loud when it sings, mm-hmm. um, as is Rob Alford's, um, as I assume is Ian's, and, and as is, is, is Ronnie's, you know, mm-hmm. um, and there's a generation of singers now that, that, that sound like they're singing really powerfully. But they've kind of trained their voices that they're, they're not making a lot of noise.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: they let microphones do the work and all the rest of it. Uh, but in a room, if you put them in a big room and said, right, go and fill that room acoustically, it's probably, you know... Not the thing, but I'm kind of old school like that, in that I always had the idea that if you were a singer, then you, you had to be able to fill a room, like, for real, like, without a microphone, you know?
1: mm mm-hmm. Was it hard to kind of keep that power, for example, if you're talking, like, about the 80s, you're talking about, like, the Power Slave Tour, um, with the amount of gigs you guys were doing? And obviously, you're in your 20s, you're in a rock band, I'm sure you're having some drinks, like you mentioned. Was there ever times when you, you felt like, oh, man, like, like, how did you keep your voice powerful during all those shows?
2: Well, the, the the truth is, I didn't. I mean, the, the um, uh, it, it was very frustrating because we were we were doing a, a schedule that was you know pretty brutal, particularly given the you know the way I sing. You know, we we're always a loud band, and we had t- terrible problems with monitors. We never really had a very effective mm. monitor set up, and there was no real time to to really get into it. There were no in-ear monitors. I mean, actually, yeah. I don't like them anyway. And, of course, there, there, were no, there was no recovery time for sickness either. So if you did get a cold, you had to sing through it. But we were doing uh, five days on, uh, one day break, four days on, one day break, five days Shit. on. So we were doing basically five, four, five, four, five, four. When I first joined the band, there was a run of gigs that were like eight one day, seven, one day, six, one day, we were doing like a two hour show. I mean, that can only end one way mm-hmm. for, a, uh, for a singer, you know, your voice, you either destroy your voice right. um, or you destroy yourself. Mm-hmm. You know? So you, you, you've got to be, be, be smart, be sensible. Now, at the time, obviously being young, you can push your body, but voices, voices don't, you know they, they don't like it when you don't get any sleep, when you're sick, when you you know you're bouncing around you're different. So you've got to kind of look after your voice more than you look after yourself. I mm-hmm. think. But now, I mean, you know, I mean we now have a setup where uh, I mean, notwithstanding having the throat cancer thing and everything, I mean I think I'm singing better now than I was in the 80s by a long by a long way. Mm-hmm. And uh, or even even though the, the voice, you know, sounds slightly different, you know, it's a little bit darker in tone. Um, but we haven't changed any of the keys. We still sing all the songs in all the original keys. We don't detune or anything like that. Uh, never have done. And, frankly, we'll continue um, in, in that vein. You know, if we don't need to detune, I, I think the songs lose something if they're written in A440, you should play them in A four forty. There's a reason why they work in that key.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, all the harmonics, all the notes, they all work in that key. And you drop it by half a step or whatever, and it just sounds kind of dirgy, you know. But what we're doing now is we, because the gigs are, every gig is completely crucial now because they're all big.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, you
2: know, they're all ten thousand, fifteen, twenty, thirty, forty. I mean, we're doing one in Madrid. In next summer, it's already over thirty-five thousand tickets. Unbelievable, and still selling strongly. And that's not—it's not a festival. It's our Yes, so, yeah. You know, we could end up with forty-five, fifty thousand people turning up just to see us, not a mm-hmm. festival. And you're thinking, you've got to be on top of your game here, boy. You know. So we do—you know—three and a half to four shows a week, and that's that's nice. And the. The, the way we run it is that if we do two shows back to back, we have we have two days break to make sure we're back up to full power. So you know, you have we do a show day, show day break, show day break. We can go on like that as so we mm-hmm. get a day of recovery. So we, we, it works out about four shows a week, and that's that's good. I, I don't like to do. Not many shows because you you lose the momentum. Yeah, but you've just got to get you got to get it just right, you
1: know. Well, it's interesting because the last time we spoke, you had just come back from from your throat cancer scare, and, and you were getting ready to go on tour, and you were saying you're just getting your saliva back and all this sort of stuff. And I I saw you a couple months later uh, in Vegas, very beginning of Book of Souls tour, and you started it on top of the pyramid singing uh, uh, the the uh, it's, it's escape me now the opening track from Book of Souls. Um, just it's acapella of vocals, you know, it's just you. And it was really cool to see, knowing that only months before you were still getting back in the groove of vocals. And then now here you are just belting out this tune all by yourself to kick off the show to basically say like, okay, guys, I'm back and I'm doing all right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, 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 thought did occur to me that, that I thought, <laughs> you know, what, this is, this is a bit of a statement here at the same time. It, it is your, your voice is kind of warming up. It is the first bit, so you, <laughs> you I kind of climb the ladder and sneak up behind what I used to call my my, my smoking plant pot. You know, yeah. uh, you know the steaming cauldron. You know, whatever. Yeah, that's right. Um, my, my sacred plant pot there, but uh, I, you stand up there and you do the opening line, you know, here
3: is the soul of a man, you know, and, yeah. and you're thinking, oh, there's a pretty big statement there, you know, uh,
1: <laughs> and you just hope that you don't screw it up. <laughs> then it gets higher. You screw it up, screw it up really big, you know. <laughs> well, that's the thing, you have no guitars distorted behind you, it's just you, man, you better be good. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. If- if eternity, yeah, well, yes. It better, be, better, better, better be good or better be bad. But either way, <laughs> either way is good, if you see
1: what I mean. T- There's another thing I was going to mention before. If Eternity Should Fail, that's the name of the tune. I could, it escaped my mind. I apologize. But uh, I, I want to just briefly put, touch on cr- the crazy world of Arthur Brown, because he was known, and not very well known in the States, but in England a really uh, crazy showman that always had different costumes and that sort of thing, which Bruce Dickinson always has during the course of the show. You're always doing different capes and jackets and masks and et cetera. And that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. There's always been a bit of, uh, a bit of theatricality lurking in the background with me. And, um, I mean, when I first saw, I mean, I talk about it in, in, in the book about when I first saw Arthur and, um, it, it was really amazing. I mean, I, I just thought, "Oh my God, I'm I'm tripping," you know. But I wasn't tripping because I've never taken acid or anything like it ever in my life. But I thought, I thought, "Wow, this must be what it's like to like be on acid," because I can see the universe and after and it's so cool. I was 15 years old, and I was just having a massive sugar rush, basically. But I mean, the the, the excitement that I got, and his voice. Oh my God! I mean. It really was. It sounded like the voice of God. Mm. Um, He has this funny, like, you know, intonation that he does. But he's got the most extraordinary voice. Uh, And when you get into his career, it was a very, very eccentric, quirky kind of career. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kind of hit and miss and and, and just very strange. But really wonderful for it because it, it was all done in... It was all so experimental, you know. Mm-hmm. So, in the days before digital, Arthur decided to have a band without a drummer. Really? So he had this thing actually called the Bentley Rhythm Ace, which obviously somebody's called their band that years ago. <laughs> but the Bentley Rhythm Ace was actually a series of tape loops mm-hmm. of drums, at which you would twiddle knobs, and they would therefore start to turn at different speeds. I so think. Turn each drum to a different speed, completely analog. Right, so mm-hmm. there was no. You, you really had to play this thing, and the tapes would wobble and they'd be unreliable. But that was <laughs> that was the rhythm section, and that was Arthur. This huge tripod with a microphone hanging down off it, and Arthur comes on dressed like a high priest. <laughs> he has two keyboard players with Mellotrons, a VCS3 synth, which I don't know if you know that what that is, but it's it's the synth that basically all of uh, dark side of the moon all those weird noises oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's all vcs3 theremins which was uh, the world's first electric musical instrument sure, yeah. uh, electronic instrument uh, which is basically you wave you play by waving your hand in the air and was built as a as a but it's basically a burglar a, a alarm that was invented to protect Russian troops in the trenches in the First World War by an inventor called Leon Theramin. And he went, hey, I could turn this into a musical instrument. And he did. And effectively, it, if you listen to the original movie, the, the Day the Earth Stood Still by Robert Wise, yes. virtually the entire soundtrack... It's theremin, and as soon as you hear one, you'll go, oh my God, so that's what that is. You think it's some weird violin, or you think it's some weird woman singing. No, it's a theremin. (laughs) So all of this, like, big hodgepodge was Arthur Brown. So there he is doing his voice of God, playing this mad drum machine with all these weird synthesizers going on, and suddenly a bloke comes on with a traffic light and starts beating somebody dressed as a brain. And you're going, okay, this is strange, but I like it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> which led to you wearing lucha masks on stage and frog suits for uh, somewhere on time tour. That was a good one. I like the frog suit. That was fun.
2: Yeah, yeah. The, the um, <laughs> I mean the, the the thing with the thing with Arthur was that um, the, the original album, the Crazy World of Arthur Brown, which which has got the hit track on it. You know, the I am the God of Hellfire and I bring you fire, which yeah. people might have heard. Fire, yeah. Um, yeah. That was only a three-piece band. That was Arthur singing, Carl Palmer from Emerson, Lake and Palmer, uh, on drums, and Vincent Crane, who went on to form Atomic Rooster, mm. on keyboards and bass pedals. That was a whole band. Um, so even that was pretty, uh, pretty was a pretty strange setup. Pete Townsend of the Who was the executive producer. And the whole story, it's one of the world's first concept albums. Oh, really? And it's what led to um, Quadrophenia. Oh, okay. Um, and Tommy. Because the, the, and the, the, uh, the story of the album, of uh, Crazy World of Arthur Brown, is basically, it's kind of Dante's Inferno. It's the story of a man's descent into hell. And he has a trip, and then he goes down into hell, and finally he comes up against the door and uh, knocks on the door, and uh, he's going, oh, it's so hot in here. Oh, let me out. The door opens, and the, this voice says, I am the god of hellfire. And <laughs> they think, oh, right then, you've arrived. So it's a, it's a story of a man's descent into hell. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, um,
2: so it's a pretty cool concept, you know, for 1967,
3: I think it was.
1: Very uh, ahead of its time. Absolutely. Um, just as, as we wind down here, just a couple more questions for you, Bruce, there's a couple of things. You mentioned Maiden being bigger than ever. And there's a very interesting story in the book. Um, and I can tell you played it close to the vest. But that meeting that you had in the pub with Steve Harris before you came back into Maiden back in 99 or whatever it was, um, was that kind of a secretive yeah. thing, like almost an espionage where you guys had to meet in a dark room or, or how would that how did that go?
2: it was all a little bit strange because, you know, Rod Rod is paranoid about like losing control <laughs> over anything, you know, course, like or right. getting out into the media or all this kind of stuff. So, Come on, Bruce. So we ended up it – was, it was just it was very odd. It was a sort of place that, that neither of us would normally be seen get in. It was like a yacht club or something and some bar, and there was nobody in it except for the other guys in the band <laughs> hanging out in the corner. Uh-huh. And me and Steve and, you know – at first, it was it was a bit awkward at first because we hadn't seen each other b- by and large for five years, mm-hmm. and I'm coming back, and and I'm like, you know, w- w- and, and I'm trying to, you know, tread gently because th- there's no point in trying. To, there's no point in in trying to talk about the old days or anything. Let's just talk about what we can do in the future, and we can, you know, we can, we can rehash ancient history once we are underway. once we really doing something? Because I think we both had to, you know, we both had some issues of trust
3: mm-hmm. going on here. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and, and so you, you've got to just, you, you've really got to give the other person space.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: it was quite a fragile little moment, actually, and quite special. And, um, and he just said, look, why do you want to come back? And I said, because we need to make everything great again. Yeah. Mm-hmm that sounds like somebody else, doesn't it? I really didn't mean it like that. <laughs> Let's
1: make our own Maiden great again.
2: <laughs> uh, um, but it was one thing that, actually, it was Eddie Casillas from my solo band
1: mm-hmm.
2: said to me, and and I said to them, I said, they're going to ask me to rejoin Maiden, I know it, and I said, and and, and when that happens, I said, my feet won't touch the floor, I said, I, and and I'm not going to be able to do solo records with you guys and go on tour and stuff, and 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 Eddie said, he said, "Hey man, they said that's cool." He said, uh, he said, "You got to, you got you to do it." Mm-hmm. I said, oh, it's "Okay." I said, "Why have I got to do it?" And he went, "Because the world needs Iron Maiden, man." Yeah. And I went, "Yeah, actually, the world does need Iron Maiden." You're right. Mm-hmm. That's a really good reason. <laughs> and so I just went in with that kind of attitude that you know. We need to be back, and we need to be back properly, and we need, we need to be back in ways that people don't even realize what we, how, how good we can be and, and how far we can take this thing. Because I'd learned so much when I was outside of Maiden mm-hmm. that I could bring back and throw back into the pot. And I think we'd all learned a lot. You know, even Steve, you know, with his experience of being, you know, when I wasn't in the band. Right. Everybody had learned so much. We'd all, you know, had a dose of the outside world, um, whether we liked it or not. And that rubbed off. And and we're a much better band now, I think, than we were in the years before.
1: Was one of the caveats for you to come back was to to bringing Adrian back?
2: Yeah, I mean, it it, it was was always... Adrian coming back was never going to be an issue. Gotcha. um, Because one of the first things that Steve said, he said, I, I, he always wanted three guitarists anyway. Because <laughs> uh, there's more than enough guitar parts to play. <laughs> That's and the and truth. Adrian is just really integral to our sound, you know. I mean, so, uh, you know, Adrian, Adrian and Dave um, together, I mean, what a beautiful setup. You yeah. know, On all those, you know, first few albums that we did. But then, you know, when Adrian left, you know, Yannick had actually been in the band for longer the Adrian mm-hmm. had been in the back, when Adrian came back, right? Yeah. So, so that, Yannick had kind of established his own niche as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we had three little niche guitar players here. So let's play around with it. And of course, it meant that we had more, a lot more songwriting firepower as well. Sure. You know, so the actual fact that the songs started getting, um, you know, uh, divided up in a much more kind of round robin sort of way.
1: Right. Well, that was your songwriting partner too. Is always Smith Dickinson writing those tunes that, that you guys put together.
2: Well, well, well No, I mean, it, I mean, obviously, I used to write a lot with Adrian. Mm-hmm. But then on Seventh Son, I wrote with Steve, and then you know, it, yeah, it, everybody was everybody's just writing a little bit with everybody else, you know, which is it's nice, you know, it's how it should be.
1: Good chemistry. Two two last questions. When you when you left Maiden, I always wondered this. They put out a single for "How Would Be Thy Name," and you mentioned it's actually there's a picture of it in the book um, of from the live record. And Eddie is actually running you through with a pitchfork uh, in hell. It's like bruises. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Did you know about that? I think that was probably that was probably Rod's idea. Yeah, I was like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Did did you know? For that, you know. Did you just see it one day? No, I didn't know. Of course, I didn't.
2: (laughs) What did you think when you saw it? I thought, yeah, yeah, you know, I think you know, I, I bet you think you're pretty clever, Mr. Smallwood. Yeah, don't worry. So that's when I, I decided to design Edison, just to wind him up.
1: Edison was the uh, guy in the cover of Accident of Birth, the crazy clown.
2: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he said, uh, he, said uh, yeah, he, he freaked out and was jumping up and down. He said, Oh, it's, it's Eddie son. I went, Hey, no, it's not Edison. He invented the light bulb. Look, he's got three, three broken ones on the top of his head. It's a bright idea. Yeah.
1: It's drawn by Derek Riggs, Why but you it's just a great idea.
2: hearing me on Hallowed Be Thy Name. Yeah. That was a clever idea.
1: Last question. is something I've dealt with for years. I was always known in the 2000s when I was wrestling for, I had really long blonde hair. And then one day I made the cardinal sin of cutting it. To where it's like, how can you still be yeah. Chris Jericho with short hair? And I loved your description of when you cut your hair and the reason for it. Did that surprise you, the reaction that you got, that you had cut your famous hair?
2: Um, oh, yeah, but it, 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 didn't, it didn't surprise me. But, you know, honestly, I think people got over it extremely quickly. You know, it's like really, uh, like this like hair thing is like, this is like super important to like the music or whatever. And uh, yeah, maybe for one or two people uh, it it is, was, but I think, you know, now the world has moved on where if you want to have long hair and your long hair looks great and you're happy with it, have long hair. If you want to have short hair, have short hair. It's like, it's not prescriptive, guys. You can wear, you can be whoever you want to be now, as long as the music's cool and it's real and it's authentic and it's you, that's all that matters.
1: I loved how you said though you looked at the promo picture of the band. You saw three young guys and one old guy with straggly long hair.
2: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, there comes a time. I mean, I mean, Jesus, Jesus, like ascended into heaven age thirty three, right? Right. At thirty three, most people really—that's the kind of cutoff point for being Jesus. And uh, after thirty three. Really, you start to look like a homeless person, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's a good time to
1: stop. <laughs> Bruce, it's so great to talk to you, man, and once again, your book is great, and congratulations on that and, uh, and your health and, and everything like that. you guys uh, uh, back out again this summer?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're going out for basically three months in Europe uh, this summer, and it is going to be an amazing show. We, we've, got a, we've got a top... The last show. Oh,
3: yeah.
2: I I honestly thought that 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 last tour we did, I was, I mean, if if somebody had come up to me at the end of the last tour and gone, hey, tonight is not the last night. We're going to do another month and a half. I would have gone, yeah, bring it on, because I Mm -hmm. was having the best time of my life um, on that tour. Anyway, that, that was the end of it. That was the end of the Book of Souls tour, and we were already planning the stage set uh, as the last notes were dying away for this next tour. Mm. And uh, we, we were agonizing, going, what the heck are we going to do? How are we going to really change the, the, the way people look at the set and change the way people look at us and, and, and make this next tour really cool? I really think we might have done it. Um, it's going to be really special. The set is going to be really special. The, the, the physical set but also i think the uh, the actual songs that play song are gonna uh, knock people's socks off
1: what's your favorite song to sing nowadays you have one
2: my my favorite song of which album of
1: any album what's your favorite song to sing live Just oh, one.
2: Jesus! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not a song um, <laughs> it could um, be <laughs> wow on the spot well i i i'll be i'll be honest with you i do like I do like the uh, the, the nice proggy ones because they, they you know you can really get get stuck into them you know mm-hmm. so, um, "Rime of the Ancient Mariner," mm-hmm. um, uh, "Sign of the Cross,"
1: "Ooh, um, interesting," uh,
2: Seven Son," you know,
1: the long one uh,
2: and "Blood Brothers."
1: Ah, great tune, man! Great tune. Well, Bruce, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you calling, and uh, and I'll see you this summer somewhere down the road. Yeah, you certainly will. Cheers, man! Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Chris. Thanks again to the legendary Bruce Dickinson. His new autobiography is called What Does This Button Do? It's a great read written by Bruce as we talked about and uh, you can really hear it in his voice. It's a lot of fun. A lot of great stories. You can get it wherever you buy books. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your favorite local bookstore, Kindle. Just go check it out and also check out Iron Maiden this spring. The Legacy of the Beast Tour kicks off in Europe on May 26th in Tallinn, Estonia. They have dates scheduled through August. Get your tickets at ironmaiden.com. What's the set list going to be like because the last show was uh heavy on the new stuff which means they're going to do a tour heavy on the old stuff i'm excited what kind of uh what kind of uh, nuggets are they going to play still life would be great uh prowler uh, phantom of the opera would be a lot of fun they've played that recently how about alexander the great that would be cool i'd like to hear that or um what else would be fun to hear uh the prophecy how about that that'd be pretty obscure infinite dreams back in the village come on maiden Open up the uh, the vaults and play some obscure tunes. Once again, get those tickets at .com, and also get the Fozzy tickets at fozzyrock.com as we hit the road in Europe uh, joining Steel Panther starting January 28th in Paris. Uh, We're heading all across Europe, then we'll go back to the United States starting February 28th in New Orleans. We've got Through Fire, Santa Cruz, and Dark Sky Choir coming along to rock with us. We're doing over 30 dates in the U.S., going all the way from New York City to Los Angeles and everywhere in between. So go check out fozzyrock.com for all the cities, dates, venues, and ticket information. You know we're doing the VIP meet and greets as well, so get in on that before they sell it. Nobody does the VIP pre-show like Fozzy. We give you a whole mini concert, take requests, meet you, take pictures with you, sign your stuff. It's one of the best in rock and roll, great value. Get your tickets at fozzyrock.com and check out the Fozzy VIP experience at fozzyrock.com as well. And remember, there's still a couple days left to make the list on Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea. If you book your cabin by this Monday, January 15th, you take a picture with me and the list. I'll even put you on the damn thing. People say, how do I get on the list? Here's how you do it. Book your cabin before January 15th, and I will put you on the list at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Remember, we set sail October 27th, and for as little as $150, you can reserve your cabin, and when you do that, everything is included in the price, all-inclusive, all the food, all the activities, live podcasts, stand-up comedy shows, rock and roll shows, meet and greet, signings, uh, all of this is included in the price of your cabin. All you pay for is alcohol and gambling, plus you get to see the whole Sea of Honor tournament free of charge, and get to meet all of the great legends and up-and-comers coming on the uh, on the Rock and Wrestling Rager. Jim Ross, Jerry the King Lawler, SoCal Val is our special cruise director, Mick Foley, Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat, Rey Mysterio, Keeping It 100 crew with Conan, Disco Inferno, and Shane Helms Beyond the Darkness telling some scary tales with uh, Tim and uh, and Dave. Don Callis and Paul Lazby were doing live Killing the Town podcast. Cole Cabana and Marty DeRosa doing their unprofessional wrestling show. It's very, very funny stuff. Brad Williams, Ron Funches, Jim Brewer. Speaking of funny, three of the great- greatest stand-up comedians in America today Jim's gonna be rocking with his band The Loud and Rowdy as well great rock and roll band Busted Open Radio will be there Dave LaGreca hopefully uh, Bully Ray as well Phil Campbell the Bastard Sons Fozzie with uh, Painless being top 40 now we're hotter than ever King is going to be with us The Stir is going to be with us The Dave Spivak Project speewe has been on the show go check out his new video Get Out of My House on YouTube now The Darlings of Rock and Roll the Cherry Bombs will be there Shoot to Thrill the world's greatest female tribute ACDC band Blizzard of Ozzy the world's greatest Ozzy Osbourne cover band and of course Ring of Honor presenting the Sea of Honor uh, tournament aboard the ship matches happening in the middle of the ocean on a ring in the middle of this cruise ship and the winner of the Sea of Honor tournament gets the Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Championship shot in the future Young Bucks will be there the villain Marty Scurll Cody Rhodes the Briscoe Brothers Dalton Castle Frankie Kazarian Adam Page uh, the beautiful Brandy Rhodes so many more are being announced in the upcoming weeks uh, and speaking of being announced coming up on Wednesday alright my former best friend Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn return to Talk as Jericho. Nothing but laughs and stories and a great time. So be here Wednesday for me, uh, Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens. Until then, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs, and a big you,
0: boy.
1: Run to the...